But the, the ABC one is probably the best one because all the commercial channels virtually just stayed in the Sydney Basin, uh, whereas we went, oh, we went everywhere. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Wherever you are in the helicopter world today, welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show. This is episode 96. We're going live in late February 2021. I'm looking forward to sharing another slice of the, the helicopter story with you today as we look at the career arc of Rick Howe, who's one of the early adopters in the industry here in Australia. Before I get to that, just over 10 days ago, the number of planets in our solar system that have helicopters has doubled. We now have a helicopter, albeit a, a very small one, on Mars. It was super geeky, but yeah, I had the, the NASA live stream going on the phone at the kitchen table and uh, dragged the kids and made them watch it as we had breakfast, watching the Perseverance rover you know, make its approach and landing on Mars. And then a couple of days later with NASA rolling out the video, showing, looking up, seeing the parachute deployment, and then looking down and seeing the approach and the heat shield dropping away and then the, the actual rover being lowered down on cables from the, from the sky crane. It's just super amazing engineering and fantastic to be able to watch it. And the, the little helicopter, it's a, a coaxial design and it only weighs two kilograms. It's called Ingenuity. And apparently the reports are it's already called home by the, the relay satellites that uh, travel around Mars. So it survived the, the landing and seems to be at least powering up. And it could be a while yet before it gets uh, dropped off and starts its uh, flight ops. But uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, again, pretty unique. For the next little bit, you'll be listening in on a chat that I had with Rick Howe. Richard, or Rick, has uh, an aviation career spanning 60 years plus. He's uh, still flying commercially in Sydney. Rick started out as a maintainer, then a fixed-wing pilot before moving into helicopters, where he's flown all over Australia, uh, Papua New Guinea, he spent 29 years as a helicopter pilot for the Australian government broadcaster, which used to be Channel 2 or the ABC, which is a pretty iconic helicopter job that unfortunately is no longer around, just as the number of news helicopters in Australia has dropped off. It's interesting to see what has changed and what hasn't changed over that sort of 60-year time frame. When Rick was starting out, the, the Bell 47 was the, the main small helicopter type expect to, to find operating anywhere uh, in this region. There are quite a few local Australian and Papua New Guinea names and, and places mentioned. If you're an overseas listener, you might miss some of the, the context there. You should be able to, to follow along with the, the general idea. Here we go. Rick, welcome to the Rotary Wing Show, and yeah, looking forward to, to having a chat because you've done a, a whole bunch of, of different things. So, so welcome. Thanks very much for having me. We were just talking about your your twin, who's in aviation as well. We didn't quite get there, but I was going to say, 
you you have to be careful in terms. I don't know who's got the, the best reputation or not, or if you've uh, lobbed into an airport, caused some trouble, and then had your your brother pick up the, the responsibility for it, or the other way around. So, has that happened? Uh, well, there's it, been you know I've been he he worked in the airline area, and I, I've always been in GA helicopters and fixed wing and so forth. We both worked for a charter company in New Guinea for a considerable period of time, and. Uh, um, he was based in Garok and I was based in Argon and Mendy. Occasionally they'd come and help us when we were overloaded with work and there was one occasion where uh, Atari, the, the key up there, he was a plummy, Chris Warrillow, and I heard my brother going out, he was in a barren and I'm on the way for Mendy and uh, John, had, my brother, had only just departed about 10 minutes and I landed in this 206 Cessna. And Buddy Warlow comes up and he, he, he's gobsmacked, you know. He's, he's looking at the aeroplane and, where'd you get the aeroplane from? Well, you know, you've just left here in the barren. I never said a word. And I just said to him, mate, you know, our company provides the best service up here. And left it at that. It was about <laughs> a month later. Somebody must have told him. Because I, I got a pretty good reception that, that time when I went back out. But, uh, and that, you know, it's happened a number of times, and uh, especially in terminals. And he was in the domestic scene here for quite some time and then went overseas and then came back and he was with Impulse and Jetstar. I spent a bit of time with the ABC doing bits and pieces and always ended up doing the Hobart for the last few years. And on one occasion down there where we used to stay, I'm, I'm sitting there having a beer and the, the whole crew came up and said, what are you doing down here, John? And I had to explain to them, you know, that it wasn't John. And anyway, you get used to that sort of thing, but it's, uh, we've had some fun. I can imagine the, the confusion on that guy's face because, you know, Papua New Guinea, I guess twins are pretty rare anyway, but then to have twins who are both pilots, and I can, I can just see his face. Like, you know, if someone takes off on a barrel and then comes back in a, in a 206. Yeah, well, it, it was. It was pretty good. We both uh, did an apprenticeship with Qantas in AMEs. We started there in 60, and that was interesting as well because you'd imagine there uh, different sections. He'd be in one section, I'd be in another section, and uh, some of the bosses at times, you know, they'd wonder could we have different lunch hours, and they they called us a couple of times, you know, thinking we were having another lunch hour. And I remember one time when um, I'm busily grinding some dowels in the machine shop, and uh, my boss came in when John was on his shoulder, and he. he there he was, I'm busy grinding away. He thought he'd caught me having another lunch. But, <laughs> you know, these things happen with those. <laughs> so was that uh, your entry in the aviation then, through the, the, the maintenance side of things? It was. It was. started in Qantas in, in 1960. Uh, we were a pretty small year. There was, I think, 26 of us that year. It was five-year apprenticeship in those days. But it was a great place to, to start. It was... You know, virtually the start of the, the seven O's had just arrived, so the pistons were sort of going out. They're still operating 1049s and TC3s, um, and the electricity had just arrived. It was a lot, I think, of mascot now, and considering what it was like when we arrived, it's you know, just totally changed domestic terminals where the international used to be, no international on the other side. The runway never went into the bay. The uh, Second runway wasn't there. A lot of grassed area up the top around where 
the exec stuff is now. But uh, yeah, it's, saw a lot of changes there. And you know, you go in there occasionally in the chopper and you just think, goodness me, what a different place it is. But that's 60 years ago, so you've got to expect that sort of development, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. So that so just timeline then, that so that would have been straight out of school then, straight into a friendship. Yeah, yeah, we were just turned 17. It was a good time. They had their own tech school as well as the trade course, which we did at Aldermo. But we both wanted to get on flying, but our grandfather had said to us, you know, you blokes have got to get a trade and you can't always rely on your health, blah, 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 if you go flying. So uh, we took that advice, and uh, but we both ended up basically um, flying. Although I've, you know, I'm, I'm a licensed engineer as well, helicopter-wise, but uh, John, my brother, he's, uh, he never got any licences, but ended up you know, virtually a career in the airlines. So how did it start out then? Were you guys, did you do flight training together? Was there a bit of a race between you to get a licence or how had the, the initial flying started? Uh, well, I started flying in, at Camden actually at, uh, in 63, both with the same aero club down there. And that was confusing as well because I'd been solo and John hadn't. And uh, the fellow who ran the place, John goes down and they went for a couple of circuits and he only had about three hours. And Wally said to him, oh, well, away you go again. And John said, said to him, hey, I haven't been solo before. So after that, he made us wear a name tag, you know. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, just another one of those little incidents that happened. But we, you know, both went through the private down at, at Camden and then went to Bankstown. We've got old Rex up there and Rex Aviation. They had a flying school as well. We both finished commercials in about 68. John got into um, Avis Air Charter. They were doing most of the, the work for the moon for gas fields, but that was still being, that was just being developed. And the crew changing so forth was done out of Adelaide. So uh, he went there. I went back to the toolbox, and that's that when I got mixed up with helicopters with helicopter utes based in Sydney. I joined him as a field engineer. He he kept on in the fixed wing side of things. So um, he then went to PNG with Mac Air in I think it was '69 or '68. Uh, and I was with heavy utes. We did six-week field tours in those days, virtually anywhere in Australia, plus PNG. They had a reasonable operation, PNG. And the, the Bougainville Copper operation was still in the exploration stage, but there was a fair bit of helicopter activity down there. I ended up down there six weeks tours. It was so good we stayed for seven months, so it was, it was a pretty good spot in those days. And what, types um, of, what types of helicopters good. were you working on then? We, uh, all, it was all 47s. Okay. But um, they, the first bit with um, Heli Utes, they, they had the contract for Bass Strait. They'd taken it over from Hampstead. The base was Bansdale. We, they had a 62, a um, 204, civilian, FH 1100, and what else? The Jetty, I think, had three, uh, two Js and a... Uh, 3D1, 
and that was it. And then there was a three v one at uh, sale at gas, the plant at sale. So you went down there when you first went in. If they liked you well, you know, you went then on to field tours, and that's how they ended up basically engineering with them. So um, that lasted for about two years. And that was and, all re- uh, that was all retransfers. It was it was taking yeah it was but it was the Marlin platform had only just started and the discovery was the drilling but it was a it was a uh, a ship with a gimbal deck on it pretty exciting going on to that that was like my first helicopter ride out there in the um, the sixty uh, two it was interesting yeah you know, they could only accept a certain amount of sea state otherwise they couldn't get on. It was, uh, you know, you can imagine what the deck was doing. But, uh, and the there was marlin, and then they started building up near um, past Omeo, off the coast of Omeo there. But I, so I ended up doing two tours down there and then doing the rest of the time when with them up in um, PNG and the top end of Australia. Gotcha, okay. And I'm guessing and you got a little I, bit of stick time along the way? Like, was that where you sort of, while you're doing transits no, or no? I, no, no, I, I was only, I was still, I had my fixed wing commercial license and I didn't even think about doing helicopters. But uh, after a period of time, you know, the lifestyle and the whatever, the uh, where you went and so forth got into me and I thought, you know, this wouldn't be bad. And I applied for a Commonwealth scholarship, which you could get in those days, and I got it. But just after I got it, I got the opportunity to join my brother at Macair in New Guinea. I thought, well, I better t- I'd be probably a good idea to take that because uh, it was a virtually guaranteed job, whereas I'd end up with a helicopter licence and no hours and no hours of fixed wings. So I, th- I think I had about 250 hours and went to Green and went to PNG. It, you know, I think it was definitely the right decision. Macair, we were a, they were a pretty small company, but they had really strong... Well, they adhered to the requirements very well with the check and training and the route endorsement and the script endorsements and so forth. It, because you can imagine, you know, no GPS or anything in those days, so it was all local knowledge. And with the conditions that do apply up there at times, it's uh, you can understand why that requirement was there. It was, it was. we were well trained and the the operation itself was very well run. Graham Cyphers was the chief pilot. He'd been there for quite some time and Ray Feltman as well, quite some time. A lot of guys probably know him, both of those fellows. But no, it was good times. And how long did you end and up doing in, in Papua New Guinea? Mixing wise, I was there for the end of 79 up to 70. And I was down on leave in Sydney, and at that stage I lost my scholarship thing for the uh, commercial li- uh, helicopter license. So I was talking to one of the guys at Heli who being the manager up there, just you know having a chat with him, and he said, "Oh, are you interested? In, you're interested in doing a chopper license?" And I thought, "Yeah, well, why not?" So. And I said to him, as long as you guarantee me a job at the end of it, because I didn't want to have no hours and then you know, nothing nothing of that to do. So 
I did that and um, I went through with Jimmy Hudson at Camden with Kev Gosling and uh, Buck Ryan. I'm sure a lot of the guys know both those two gents. It was pretty good. Loved it. So it's still um, on 47s? And all on 47s. And the 47, you know, great training machine, absolutely. And great machine to fly as well. At the end of that, Jim was an engineer as well. And they said, oh, yes, definitely we'll, we'll um, get you flying straight away. But there was a bit of a downturn. And everybody knows what happens in this industry. It's uh, is highs and lows. So we were both back on the toolbox. That lasted for about three months. And you can imagine this time I'm oh, breaking my neck to get out there. Finally, it happened. And um, I went back to Bougainville and was endorsed up there with Peter Spore, who was the then tech and training based out of LA for heavy huge aircraft. And spent initially about three months, I think, down there. And then basically, because my knowledge in PNG was pretty good, fixed wing wise, was let loose throughout the country. But I must admit, you know, it was it was good having that fixed wing or that basic knowledge initially getting into the choppers. Although I must admit, you know, the, the choppers are it's a lot easier making decisions up there, helicopter wise and fixed wing because you know you can slow it down and have a nice slow look and so forth. But it was pretty interesting because we worked really all over the, the country. Paul was going, well, Teddy had just started, although Helitrans had that contract. But Heliutes had all 47s, some Alloy 3s, which we used for the post and telegraph installation of the first microwave link system. They took off all the heavy stuff and then the 47s and the jetties, although the jetties were pretty useless initially when they first came out. The Hiller was certainly, the H1100 was certainly a little bit better. What sort of elevations were you working at there? Well, in the end, with the 47s, um, you know, the Tegum at Tobacco Hog, and that was just over 12. And then from memory, the the one behind Wabag, which was the link from, it went from Tegum to that one in Burgess Range to uh, that point, and then it pointed it down into Weewack. That was just on 13,000. Yalavu, which was uh, down near Mendy, that was about 10 on the bit. But 47 was, it was, you know, we'd take about, we could take about 500 pounds. And in those days, it was all the stations were battery operated and with a generator. It was automatic with a cut in. So the biggest thing that was done was, you know, you had to keep it in place and fuel up to it. Never shut down, of course. You just sit there and wait. Watch the cloud develop sometimes, and <laughs> hurry the blokes up and nick off. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't know. Have you worked up there? Did you ever work up there? No. Look, one of the things I really miss is yeah, when all the deployments that went up there and the, the exercises. No, I never got to Papua New Guinea. So I've only sort of through through books or, or hearing people like yourself talk about it, um, and seeing a couple of YouTube videos of the, the fixed wing guys going in, and they're pretty well committed when <laughs> they're coming in for landing or not. Uh, no, it sounds really really challenging. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the fixed wing stuff was, goodness me, I think of Omkali and some of the other you know, pretty interesting 
steep stuff, a lot of one-way strips, which was pretty good. My favourite aeroplane was the, the good old Cessna 185. She was good, good machine for those sort of short strips and so forth. Macair, getting back to them, they they ended up operating something like about 27 aircraft. They've got a great range from Queen Air's 482s, Islanders, a couple of Aztecs, bulk of 206 Cessnas and so forth. It was, you know, it was it was well organised then. It was before well and before independence, which happened in 75, September 75. The place was good place to live. It's, it's sort of gone downhill a little bit now. I think everybody would agree. In, in terms of the, like the normal sort of flying techniques and that, what was your normal procedure for your gap crossings? Did you have a you know a set procedure how you'd approach a, a gap crossing? Oh, it'd come up along the side and um, on one side of the valley. Make sure that uh, you know you had you had a you were able to see through to the other side. And I must admit, you know, it's a lot better in the chopper than what it is in the fixed wing because you're carrying a lot more body forward speed in them. Yep. But um, I always, we're all VFR, basically. It was more desirable to stay underneath it than rather go on top on him. A couple of dollars, you know, went on top and then you never know where you're going to end up in it. Punch or somewhere and then find a hole and sort yourself out, which certainly happened. But there was quite a few accidents, unfortunately. That's part of the, the history of the place up there. On the stayed with Hilly Utes till I think it was 73. And then I was approached by Peter Cook, who you probably might know. He, yep. um, he was with Hilly Trans. I went across to Hilly Trans. They were based in Cairns. They'd moved their operation from Lay to Cairns. They had the contract of Alkedi. And they just doing a fair bit of seismic out the fly and up uh, towards Kionga and Nomad River, that area through there. So I went there and they then got a a large onshore oil job with, um, they were Parker, I think it was 27 rig, Kelly Portable, 700 lifts. And we ended up getting 58 twos, kind of the uh, 58 Sikorsky with the, the right taken out, the twin pack PD6s in. Uh, we have two of those and a Charlie model or an H model piston powered for a standby. And that was basically working out of Tarama River, which was to the north west of Bakori. Uh, that was. So this is still in Papua New Guinea? For about, yeah, still in New Guinea. Yep. Yeah, yep, still in New Guinea. Um, well west. Uh, to the west of Moresby, over towards the Fly River itself, just east of the Fly River, that area through there. And that was just a lot it, of hash and trash, or what was the sort of the flying there? Was it just moving the, the equipment around? Well, it was moving the rig and then resupplying the rigs. That was, that, they were a great machine, the 58s, um, very serviceable, and we could do. Nearly 4,000 pounds on the hook, I think it was. 700 lifts to move the rig when that was moved. It was moved, I think we moved it about four times before it all finished. They ran out of money and that was the end of it. Yeah, sure. Um, they, you know, they didn't find anything. They even got the smell of gas. And when you think of it tomorrow, which is um, just 
were about only about thirty miles to the east of where we were. That's where we've got a big find there now. It's still going. There's a lot of gas up there too. Hides, which is up in the highlands. Rick, was that all single yep. pilot, or did you have you know someone working in the back? No, no, it was all no, no, it was all single pilot. Fifty fifty eights. Um, they we had a an ex Air America fellow by the name of Wayne Knight who did all their endorsements. He'd flown them a lot in Vietnam and throughout you know, the Asian area. Very, you know, just one of those good instructors and people to work with. In about, I think we, we one machine did nearly a, thousand, a bit over a thousand hours the first year. The other one a little bit less. And uh, very serviceable machines. Very, they were, they were terrific. I'll just Google that too, so make sure I get the right helicopter. So for other people listening, I said it's a Skorsky. The one now is the the H thirty four, and in the UK was that the the was it the Whirlwind or which which what was the other designated for that one? No, Wessex. Oh, Wessex. Okay. The Wessex. Yeah. Yeah, the Wessex. The fifty eight was a tailwheel with a bent leg or V leg undercarriage. And the 58T was the tur- turbine. Well, the 58T was virtually the same as what's in a 212 twin pack PD6s. Okay, yep. And they were they were made they were a conversion of Sikorsky gear. Uh, I don't know how many were made. There's quite a few of them, and a really nice thing to fly. Really nice, very stable, which is uh, you know it was made the job. Pretty pleasant, actually. Were you also on the Spanners? No, not then. Okay. And I didn't. I stayed. I, I was doing a little bit of Spanner work, but I more or less it was full time flying there. Uh, when that job, when when that contract finished, I stayed on with Helitrans because there was some other work up there, and because my fixed wing experience up there, I ended up flying, doing the crew changing and uh, taking the maintenance crews and whatever. Not all of them, but a, a fair bit of that. Out of the base, which we have at Cairns, so we go Cairns, Daru, clear customs there, and then wherever we have to go in in the territory, we had an Aztec, a, a Baron, and a Tri-Gear Beach 18, which was another nice piece of gear to fly. It was a good old bird. So that went on for um, till... 76, the end of 76, and I'd always kept in contact with one of the other pilot engineers at Ellie Utes, Graham Dallas, and he'd started the National Parks and Wildlife Service flight section in 69 with a 3D1, and I used to always call him to see Graham at Camden, blah, 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 and... Uh, they um, indicated at one stage that they were definitely going to go turbine. Would I be interested? Because he, he liked to have engineer qualified guys as well as you know drivers. So that they ended up getting a gazelle in the end of 1967. Sorry, 1976. And uh, I left Heli Trans and then joined Parks at that stage. Based at Camden. Okay, so it's the New South Wales, basically National Parks kind of division. 
And national parks, yep. Yeah, okay. So they had a gazelle. Did they then have a fixed wing fleet as well, or is it sort of you were at your rear? They had a Cessna 206 at that stage, which uh, we had for quite some time. And then we also had a, they got a part navia, and then finally a um, Power Commander 690. The gazelle was, it was, I don't know if you've ever had anything to do with them. They, they were a really lovely thing to fly. Cruised at about 135 knots, good lifter, and um, you know, great visibility. It was another very serviceable machine. I think the Australian Army looked at them at one stage, but you know, the Kiowa won out yeah. in that, on that. It was, you know, we operated that throughout New South Wales Park System, did a lot of work at Kosciuszko, a lot of work out west, virtually all over the country, which was um, pretty good. And it was a pretty small operation, um, you know, first time in those days. I think it was on about 400 people in the whole park system and I joined. I don't know what it is today, but it's certainly a lot more than that. And, you know, they've got quite a quite a large uh, aviation section now. What was the tasking with that? Because I imagine that'd be very, very varied from, from week to week. Oh, it, it, it was, well, in those days, it was broken up into four, four areas. There was the northern, which ran from the Queensland border down to just to Port Macquarie, and there was a central section went from Port down to, where was it, Nowra, and then southern section went from Nowra down to the big border, and it virtually went, if you went straight out west to Dubbo, everything, and then draw a line from Dubbo north and south, that was the western section out to the South Australian border. So we would, the tasking would, would be set up so that we'd spend a week virtually in each area, not consistently, but I suppose most of it, a lot of it was spent in the central region, which was New Zealand, in Sydney area, the basin area here, Blue Mountains and so forth. But it was all over. All over. And uh, because of the, the difference from the 47, the usefulness of the gazelle you know, got a lot of the parkies uh, Realising that you know it was a really good tool to have, certainly some of the areas, Kosciuszko in particular, they they really grabbed hold of it. They used it a lot down there because the ease of getting to and from things. We had a lot of programs down there with um, stabilisation, lifting stuff into regen of some of the higher country areas that have been affected by grazing and so forth. It's also a great tool initially in bushfires. We had a winch on it. Just a very single, you know, the hundred footer with a single person. I reckon probably one of the first buckets that ever came to Australia at Chadwick, which we used, you know, preceded the, the Bambis, which are the most common things used today, of course. Uh, and that, you know, we did a lot of fire work, a lot of fire work, when the, as the seasons required. But um, a lot of culling. What a survey. It might be hard for, especially people from overseas, to sort of picture the the area that, they, that you described the four areas there, the, the parks for New South Wales, but people overseas, like, it's, it's a massive area. I can only imagine, you know, if you're a park ranger and you have the, the helicopter there as an asset, you'd be queuing jobs up. <laughs> so I don't know what the, the flying rate was in terms of, of the budget, but there would have been no shortage of demand for it. Uh, we, we were doing, you know, 600 hours a year. Yeah, I had... Somewhere off, I got all the, the figures that we were doing, but I, you know, I, it was we averaged nearly 600 hours a year, 
and the you know the it depended a lot on the fire seasons, what was going on, uh, whatever outside work, because the fires, you know, they they obviously wanted to uh, do as much as they could with the uh, asset as the uh, as fires the off and so forth. But it could have, you know, the machine might be working at Kosciuszko and then a fire break out somewhere up north. And it was always a um, where they had the decision was if it was on a fire, it would stay on the fire. And basically, it was wasn't until about I think it was about eighty one or eighty two that they really started to use outside contractors as well. That was um, you know there was a few other machines occasionally that were being used, but basically only for uh, spotting and mapping and that sort of thing. There was very little bucket work going on until about I think it was about eighty. 81 or 82, and you know, things started to rip and I'll never forget the first million dollar fire, as they called it, was in Wallamai, which is in the Blue Mountains, which is just west of Sydney here, very inaccessible sort of country. And uh, that was the one where they, I forget how many machines they had on it, it was all jetties and that sort of thing. But yeah, it was the first large usage in New South Wales. There's not much else was happening, I don't think, in any of the other states as far as aerial. Firefighting was going at that stage. There might have been a bit of pixeling stuff, but uh, certainly not much helicopter. And early on, then, with that, because it is today. When you were first doing the yep. fires, did it, I'm assuming you had a hook, but you weren't using the, the hoist then? You had a, a hook system with that first no, bucket? No, no, but, no, it had, no. It had, a, it had a, a, a hook, a very, you know, being articulated edit, but, you know, it's nice and stable. Good machine, and the really good thing to winch out of too. That um, you know, with a jetty, I don't know if you, you would. I was going to say, had you done you bucket work? Oh, actually, I can't remember. If, I don't think we had a winch on the on the jetty. So no, I don't think I've ever. Yeah, not not on the jet range. I don't think I've done a winch. Yeah, well, you know, you just run out of sight. But you, you've got to be very careful. Well, it's it's not as easy in the jetty as what it was in the uh, in the well in the to sell all the squirrel, you know, with the articulated heads. Yeah. We we did a lot of we did a lot of winching. They had a, a crew, especially here in the Blue Mountains in the Sydney area, they would thunderstorm come through, lightning strikes and so forth, fix when it out first thing in the morning and come back and well, we we could virtually get away just after first light. You could pull up the timber. And then go in, winch a couple of guys in. And in those days, they'd cut a pad. And then we'd take in probably about another four or five. And while they were trying to round it up, we'd be doing it with a bucket. So uh, it's basically what they do again today, but there's a lot more machines doing it. Now, Glenn Coddington was a, the, uh, the chap who, he's one of our listeners who, who put me on to you. But he, he said there was a bit of a story there somewhere with the fire bucket terms of there's a situation where they wanted to, to retrain you or something or other and you had to remind them that you'd already done the bucket training and were like one of the first people in Australia to do it. Do you remember what that situation was? Oh, I don't know where he got that from, but um, look, yeah, we weren't using, no, there was no long lining when we were doing it. You know, you had it on about a 10-foot strop underneath the machine or 15-foot, that was it. 
not lie today with the long lining, and uh, I've done very little long lining. I did a bit in 2017, and it was, oh, look, it was, it, I just found it very, very difficult because, you know, with the squirrel, it's, uh, where you sit, it's so hard to see the, you've actually got to sit on the side. I don't know if you've done any long lining, but uh, I'm sure a lot of the bikes that, that have know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, it's just, it takes some, it's a skill, it really is a skill. Yeah. Um, but the, with a shorter line, you know, certainly it was much easier. But you can understand the long line because you're getting no downdraft from the machine. Plus, you can go and pick it out. You know, you can pick water out from you know pretty congested sort of areas, really, which you can't do with a belly tank. So you've got a lot more access with a long line. And also, with the setup that they've got today, the multi-drop stuff, you can just screw it a bit here, screw it a bit there. It's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's progressed so far today compared with what it was like when we first started doing it. Yeah, well, we've had some big fire seasons go through there. And, and again, the machines are getting bigger and bigger. So we're now seeing you know, Blackhawks are starting to, to push out the, the, uh, the, the, the Huey models. Um, and I guess there would have been a, a point there where, you, again, you had the, the jet ranges and the squirrels being pushed out by the, um, by the, the bigger bells. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, I think, you know, the mediums will always be there because cleaning up is one of the things that after fire's gone through, there's always cleaning up to do, especially in the remote areas, and that'll always keep the mediums occupied. The, um, you know, that's changing all the time, and especially now with the um, the lats and so forth, the big big swing stuff. Yep. Although... You can't you can't bend it around corners like you can with a bucket, and uh, there's always no fire runs in a straight line, so you can put a lot of it out, but you can't put all of it out. So there'll always be work for the helicopter. And did you stick with the uh, the gazelle, or did they they upgrade at some point? No, we um, we had a an accident with the gazelle, and it was it was written off. And we finally ended up with a with a squirrel that was in I think '86, and I stayed with Parks till '88, and then I joined Gary Tyson at uh, Channel Two. I went became became a, a media driver for the next twenty going years. So <laughs> uh, well, look at that because that's that's definitely a fairly plum job for people who were looking at in that time but uh were you in that gazelle crash or that was someone else no no that was they had a a partial engine failure at perisher it ended up amongst some pretty heavy granite structures and uh, sort of it was not fixable yeah so uh it was although they'd been it was the second gazelle we had because the first one was it was written off in a in an accident in the Warren Bungles where there was a one fatality in that. Uh, that was, uh, I wasn't there at the time. I was, I spent a, about a year working with electricity in the commission. Um, got sick and tired of following power lines and had the opportunity to come back to parks shortly after that accident, actually. The second one, it, when it happened, that's when they went to the school. And it was a bit of a game changer as well because it was certainly easier to load 
than the gazelle. It wasn't as fast, and it probably wasn't wasn't as good at altitude initially until they put that tab on the car rotor on the squirrel. The gazelle, even though with the fenestron, it was you know a really nice handling machine, very nice. The squirrel was a bit disappointing initially when they when we first got it. Anyway, it, uh, they fixed all that up, and with the V3s now, you, you know you've got paper power and certainly a good all-round machine. Yeah, no, definitely uh, pretty popular there at the moment. But yeah, so it's back to Channel Two, and I guess people now would probably report more of the ABC. So this is sort of our like our, our government broadcaster here in, in Australia. And yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah, look, you know, I, I guess at that point I wasn't didn't know too much about helicopters and wasn't uh, involved, but I imagine that would have been the peak job. Like people would have been climbing the pyramid to, to get that job. Well, it was um, it was basically when I joined Channel Two, um, the guys at uh, Nine had been there for I don't know how many years. The guys at Seven had been there for so many years. The guys at Ten had been there for so many years. There was virtually six of them. Yeah, seven of us. There weren't too many movements, shall I say, uh, out of position. Yep. That's for sure. And it, um, but the, the ABC one is probably the best one because all the commercial channels virtually just stayed in the Sydney Basin, uh, whereas we went, oh, we went everywhere. We had, you know, there was a scientific journalist, there was a, others, the just a variation of journalists that had specific jobs that they were doing and we supported them. And it was a bit of, I won't say it was a bust, but we went, we did a lot of trips away and also we, we did, a, you know, quite a lot of docos in those days, you know, Bush Tucker Man series, what else? Oh, there's just a, so many of them, a lot of stuff, the Four Corners, a lot of stuff, the Cemetery Report and so forth. We go away for a couple of days, but we had a pod. They had a policy that if it went away on a trip somewhere, it wouldn't just be one story. They'd try and get a number of stories up for the burnout at the time. But there was a lot of just day trips away or overnights as well. And we operated, you know, virtually the far north I've ever went is Cairns. Um, I've been down to Hobart that many times. All around Lake Eyre and up around through there, Kimberley, so forth. A lot of that was definitely green dot goes. Yeah, it was um, it was a good operation and then gradually as time went on, of course, the uh, the money got less and less and and the coming of drones have certainly slowed it down. It it stopped in the in two thousand and seventeen. It was um, when they decided that they weren't going to have another uh, extension on the contract. So that was the end of the ABC job. Yeah, we can talk a bit about but that sort of was, how it's worked out. But yeah, so what, what were some of the, the big documentaries you're on? I'm trying to think as a kid, there was, um, I'm pretty sure it would have been ABC, but before the Bush Tucker Man, there was, a, there was another guy who did a lot of you know bush food. Do you remember the, the big shows back then that you were sort of involved in? No, no, I can't. Um, uh, there was I'm trying, a big country that was um, David Flatman. He, in fact, I did a job that was 
prior, actually. It was when I was still with Parks and did a job with them. They, they, they were still running at the time I joined the ABC. But then the, oh, I wish we remember the, the name of the, um, uh, the group, Natural Resources or something, I think they called it. And they were the main doco producers at the time. So the Bush Tucker series, that lasted for about, I think we did about seven or eight different trips away with that over a two-year period. Yep. And in fact, the first one we've done with the ABC did it with a Army Kiowa, and Les Hiddens was the main man. And then it was decided that the ABC would use, we didn't use the machine, the Sydney machine, we, we cross-hide machines everywhere. We used the Sydney machine for a couple of the, the closest stuff to Sydney, but because it was going to be away for so long, they didn't use it and want it to be away for that period of time. So we cross-hide and used Jetty virtually everywhere we went on that. The Sydney and Hobart um, features a, a bit there as well, Alex. What sort of coverage and, and how far would you follow the, the race there uh, for that? That was one of the prime ones. We'd start Boxing Day because ABC had the broadcast rights then. It's gone to seven. Oh, I forget how many years ago. They still got it for the start. But uh, we'd do the start and then um, overnight the first night in Maringala. I started, I was doing some of the fixed wing backup because we had to take our satellite station with us with just a couple of light aircraft loads with the personnel. So the machine would follow the boats and we'd have the satellite set up at Moringala and generally there for a day, maybe two days, because the boats weren't as fast as what they are now. And then down the Flinders, set it up there again and then to Hobart. Days it used to be about you know you guarantee about three days for both now it's day and a bit they're so quick and of course with the technology that's around today compared with when we first started you can do it all on virtually on a laptop take all the stuff that the cameras got and send it back as long as you've got a cell on your phone you can send it as you're going along. It can be virtually all edited and cut and so forth before you even get back to the to where you've got to get some fuel. But the the Hobart was it's always an interesting race. You never know where you're going to end up. And until '98, they'd give you a report where they were that you knew they weren't going to be there because they didn't want the other blokes to know where they were. <laughs> yeah, a bit of competition going. You'd go out and there'd be this reporter come in, they'd say, so you go that long, so and so, and you'd go out there and you bloody, you couldn't see anything. So you'd go wandering around, find it. Then after 98, after the, the, the disaster in 98, when the uh, GPS positioning became mandatory and the tracker, it just made it so much easier because you could, you know, you've got it on your bloody iPad and you can see exactly where they are and where you go. The weather's nothing thing too, of course, you get especially on that east coast of Tassie at times, the sea fog there can be a bit disconcerting. 
I was going to ask, how do you prep yeah, when you go out there? Are you wearing an immersion suit? Are you taking extra stuff out with you? Like how far offshore are you going? Well, we end up the run line from Sydney to Tassie Island at um, the Rimbula. It's about 50 miles offshore. So, you know, when they're... And you never know where they're going to be. It depends on the pressure patterns where they're going to be. They'll either stay east or west of the run line. And sometimes, you know, they'll be 70 miles, 80 miles east of the run line. So you're, you've got to go... You're going out 110, 120. I think the first lever went to about 130 out from uh, Watuta. And you haven't got long out there, as you can imagine. And depending on the wind, where it's coming from, you either got to come back to Malatuda or you keep on going on the fingers. Most of the time, they're, they're pretty close to the run line or about 20, 30 miles east or west of it. Yep. Some, it just depends on the pressure patterns. Sometimes I'll be right in close. You know, I remember one year, God, they just virtually hugged the coast the whole way down. It was pretty easy. But the, you know, the further out they are, you've really got to watch what you've got as far as your fuel is concerned. That's for sure. And do you ever, I don't know, get tempted or get involved with, I don't know, lots of stuff goes wrong on those boats. So are you involved sometimes with calling and help for them and things? Well, it well. It's amazing, you know, I've seen some pretty interesting stuff. I remember one year, Gary was with us and about five o'clock in the morning, with a bang on the door at Marimba, he said, we've got to go back there. So it was a New Zealand boat. They'd lost the mast just off Maruya. And they're about 40 miles out. And we've been a couple of blokes pretty badly hurt on it. So off we go at the first light. We get up down there, says sea fog. Couldn't get down anywhere near it at all. It was coming back into Batemans Bay, which is just to North Maruya there. And we landed at Batemans Bay. They went, you know, the crew went and got there, you know, their shots of the carnage on the boat and so forth. And South Care was there in the one too. They couldn't winch anybody because of what was going on with the, the sea fog. So, uh, when the, it was settled that uh, the boat, you know, they've got a, they covered what they wanted to cover. Everybody had to go back to Maruya, which is just down the road, to refuel. And we all got down to Maruya. We were just standing there refueling, and the folks from South Key came up and said, Well, we've got another one of those here. It's at 70 miles out, and it's sinking. So we all refuel, and out we go. It was this. Kumalu, which was a, it was a beautiful restored wooden boat, absolutely magnificent, and they reckon it had hit a container. And when we got there, he was, you know, it had been flooded downstairs. They couldn't get the engine or the pumps going, and uh, it lasted about thirty minutes before it went under. At that stage, there was two other yachts that pulled up. And uh, they got the blokes off, and that was the end of this magnificent bag. I've got a fantastic shot of it with there's a bloke in the walking, in the in, down below, he's passing a bucket of water to the bloke next to him, and it's the next bloke's just throwing the, the other bucket overboard, and the owner's standing there with a cell phone, obviously, talking to Sensar, I think, about 
what's going on. And unfortunately, they uh, they lost the boat. Yeah, no. Yeah, we imagine any times where you're sitting there watching and you, you you can't help it all and watching it happen, but it must also be reassuring for them to have you nearby. Yeah, well, it is. But, uh, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, you can talk to Sensor and give them a clap along and everything of where you are or where it is, uh, which is a help occasions. You know, look at uh, Wild Oats, how many times it's won it. I think it was 2014 or 2013. We got this fantastic shot of it halfway across Bass Strait. It's running with his um, north, uh, southwester, northwester, and 36 knots. All the guys are just standing down the back, and this thing is just powering along. Water going everywhere, and it's going quicker than the swell, and it's the biggest nose in it. Just, you know, he's sitting there. And the cameraman, he's, he says to me, got to be interesting if something broke now. Can you imagine, you know, all that inertia, what I'm saying to him, don't even think <laughs> about it. You know? It was just, just a, I've got a fantastic shot of that one too. The Hobart, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great event. Constitution Dock, when they all come in, is it's a pretty good. And that bottom end of Tasmania, from... Marae down to Tassie Island and up through Storm Bay, the organ pipes at Cape Royal and so forth. Just beautiful country, beautiful country, but it, God, it can get wild. You know, the weather down the bottom end there can certainly get wild. Tasman Island, so have you been down there at all? No, not at all. So, again, just, just hearing stories of it, yeah. When you think of it, the biggest one was. I think it was 94, which was the 50th anniversary. There were 373 boats in it. And that race was, it was a slow one. It was, it was amazing. Because once again, we're taking the satellite gear and the fixed wings down there. And I was doing the fixed wing side of it that year. And we repositioned the stuff from Marimbula down to Flinders Island in two machines and then we had to come back in one fixed wing, five of cheap and actually, and pick up the remainder of the crew and take them down to Flinders. I don't think we got above 200 foot all the way back from Flinders back up to Rimula. And we're just weaving in and out of the boats. It was, a, it was just a beautiful day. You know, light breeze. All these guys were just out there, you know, having a Saturday sail. It was just fantastic. There's been a fair bit of carnage at times, but uh, it's amazing. You know, the, the, um, there's been very, there's virtually only been that one bad year, 98. Yeah, were you, were you covering uh, it that year? year? No, Gary was. Gary Tyson was. And he was instrumental in locating a lot of that stuff. Because he, and we had the comms on a, uh, it wasn't a sat phone, it was just a normal analog phone in those days, but now the Imlay, which is at the back of uh, Eden there, there's a Peter station there, or Ed would pick it up, and he was able to broadcast a lot of the positions to Sensar, and then, of course, the Victorian Police, uh, South Care, and uh, I forget who else, they were all involved in it. The sea state was just amazing. But it was a small cell. All the fast boats had gone through, it was a virtually just the, the middle 
section of boats that were mixed up in it, and the slower boats were out of it. It was um, not too far. It's about, I think it was about 20 miles to the south east of Gabo Island, where the surf, but it was, it's, it, you know, at its worst. It, uh, yeah, the Fairbanks County is that year. Oh, wow. Well, okay, so you've done a yeah, whole chunk, and I guess you must get to a stage two where you can launch out over Sydney and head to, to cover a story uh, and just know where you're going just because you, you know the area so well. I suppose New South Wales, there's not much of it that I haven't seen. In fact, there's not much of Australia that we haven't seen, I suppose. If you've been doing chopper work in this country, you've had, especially from when I started, you've had the opportunity to venture far and wide and, you know, New South Wales, I just know it like the back of my hand. Yep. And a fair bit of some of the other parts as well but, uh, and low level, not sitting up there at 36,000. <laughs> That's as I said earlier about my brother, you know, I said to my brother, everyone used to tell him, you know, he'd be sitting up there on the old bus, the air bus. I said, all you are is a systems monitor punch it in and just watch what's going on. I said, we see it down here. And have you had, yeah, you know, if you're sitting down in the hangar with new pilots or young pilots, and have you had a couple of close scares that have kind of stood out that you remember now looking back? Um, no, I've had, um, I had um, one engine failure in the 47 PNG. Um, Bit fortunate there. It was pretty heavily timbered country in the in the hills, and um, it just happened right when there was a, uh, a an old garden area. I managed to get the machine into there, so that was okay. And I've, I've only and the only other incident I really had was um, I hit a wire up on the uh, out inland from Kempsey on the New South Wales coast. It was a long single earth return one going across a valley. Yep. Saw it just before I hit it. Got on the skid on the right hand side. Just had a you know, jetty. Just had enough to gradually come to a halt. Backed off it. And it went ping out the front. Didn't break it. And I think I got the biggest adrenaline rush I've ever had in my life. Yeah, that's pretty close. Yeah. But, um, yeah, other than that, um, oh, you know, there's been a bit of weather at times. That, that, that's one good thing with a helicopter. You can poke around and sit down and so forth. But uh, basically, um, had a, in the 355, after maintenance one time, we're all from the channel. We were going to Dubbo. Just got, we were based at Artarman, which is on the north side of the harbour on a rooftop helipad of the channel there and I got just right next to channel nine and no forward cycling and jam collective and uh, I figured that um, we'd had a servo change the day before and I thought Jesus you know something's gone wrong with the servo and by just lateral input because I couldn't stop the thing climbing. And uh, by going left and right, laterally, you know, you can turn and I could control the height, but I couldn't reduce the power. 
and you know the throttles are in the roof on the three yeah. five five. I'm thinking, what am I? You know, where's the best place to go? So I thought, oh, I'll go to Bankstown. And I called up um, Senna and Bob Vader. I thought, oh, darling, probably. And he said to me straight away, he said, we've got you, you know, 6.8 nautical for Mascot. Do you want to come here? And I thought, there's a lot more services at Mascot. I'll go there. So we're winding our way towards Mascot, and I'm going left and right, pushing on the lead horse, the, the old collective, as hard as I could, thinking, you know, will it release, will it release? And I got just past the CDD on a clearance director mascot, and the bloody lever went to the floor, and I thought, you beaut, and then I thought, how much can I bring it back up? Anyway, I just had enough, and at that stage, I, was, I got the cyclic control back as well, forward cycling. Went to Mascot, went to the helicopter area there, and as I'm pulling it into a hob, it all jammed up again. So I just reached up and just closed the throttles, and we went bang onto the ground, didn't damage anything. And what it was was, I don't know if you know a twin squirrel, but just a lot of stuff around the transmission. And they'd been uh, retalk on the, the Starflex, and they'd used an extension on the Torque wrench, and they'd left it behind the oil tank, oh, yeah. right next to the support for the transmission. And when the the power the the uh, servo had gone up on the left hand side, the the tube had jammed underneath the pilot valve cover on the servo. And it's got these little tiny hexagonal head bolts on it, and what happened was because I was pushing down so hard on the lever, on the collective, and with the vibration, it took a nick out of the pipe, and that's when it went let go. And then on landing at Mascot, when I pulled it back up, it went underneath the bloody servo again, and that was it. So that was a bit fortunate. But, um, yeah, know. okay, that's a pretty close um, call. In. So, yeah, so you had no Ford cyclic, so you were basically just stuck with whatever you had, and the collective no, was stuck. No, no. No forward cyclic whatsoever. You know, it was just neutral. And so it was left and right, left and right. And, uh, and, and where, where, were you, where were you when it jammed? Was you were on takeoff in forward flight when, when we, it jammed? No, no, no. We, we just got it got just climbing through about 800 foot. We can go to 1,000 going out of the channel, going down towards the harbour. Yep. And uh, just got to about 800 foot when that happened. And there's no way I could, you know, you just, like, I had to go to a big area, I thought, to try and put it on the ground. I wasn't going to go back to the channel. Yeah. It was just ripped off bad. But, um, well, that's tricky because obviously, you, those, yeah, normally, you know, obviously if you've got no Ford Cycle, at least you've got some secondary effect if you can get the collective down. <laughs> but if you don't have a collective or Ford Cycle. Well, like I couldn't. I yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't. That's, that, that's it, you know. Initially, I thought it in the cycle. And I thought, oh, yeah. So the natural tendency is to put the collective down. wouldn't go down. Yeah. So. All right. Well, can Yeah. And, all right. Can you still take it for that one? And with um, the, uh, since the ABC finished, I've been just contracting you know, fire season with, on the, with Creole Aviation on 5200, which is the camera ship they use. 
okay. which was good because I've you know, had a fair bit of work with that. And each one of these upmarket gyro stabilised pieces of gear. So it's yeah, it, it, it's amazing how technology's changed in in the period of time. I think of helicopter changes since uh, '47 and whatever when I got into it up to what it is now. But also in the other parts of it, you know, in, especially in the media and the broadcast areas, with the way things used to be done, and now it's you know virtually all it's on a laptop. But the cameras themselves too, the, the mounts are just amazing. It's a blur, that one. And the one I've been using recently is a shot over, which is a New Zealand one. We did good work recently on the, the New Year's Eve and Harbour with the fireworks with one of those. And it was just, you know, just fantastic how they work. The one that the Rural Fire Service is operating on their machine, it links back through the key network and... With the camera, as long as you've got a connection, you know, it's going straight back to the control centre at Homebush, which is Sydney suburb. And then they did the centre and they did out to whatever area it's got to go to. So very useful tool for firefighting. And it's got IR as well as, well as just normal imaging. Yep. So it's, it's a really good piece of kit. So uh, that was, that's been pretty good. And, uh, that contract finished because uh, the fellow that, that I'm working for, he, he had that contract that it was transferably. It was, went to another operator last year, so I've been doing a bit of fixed wing flying, doing crew changing and so forth for, for that organisation and a little bit of helicopter stuff, but not as much as what we were in the, in the past, but still enjoying it. It's fascinating finding out the different ways that people end up where they are and, and the different routes are. And I guess, you know, if you look at your brother's career, the, I guess, the variety you end up with doing the helicopter roles versus the, the fixed wing route. So, yeah, look, it's, it's fascinating. You know, you've obviously been in the for so long and done a bunch of different things. It's, it's always great to, to find out what, what people have done. Well, I wouldn't change it for anything. It's, um, it's certainly been very enjoyable. And uh, I met a fantastic bunch of guys and girls, you know, doing it, both in this industry and others through um, contacts that you make when you're about. So, uh, no, it's been very enjoyable. And have you any tips there, Rick, for, for people who are starting out now, um, regardless of you know, particular job roles and that, but in terms of people skills or, you know, activities, what do you recommend people do to try and make those opportunities open up? What's the, any tips there on, on how to? Well, you know, you never, you don't write resumes or whatever. You go and knock on doors and talk to people. That's what I reckon yep. is the best way to do it. Um, you've got to have the qualifications. And, you know, today it's pretty hard to firefighting thing because the requirements that they require, you know, it's just so hard to, for a lot of people to get into it initially. Uh, the hour requirements and so forth. It's a bit ridiculous, you know, I think with um, some of this type requirement, especially for guys that have been working similar machines, but not having so many hours on the type when, especially the twins, when basically there's a lot of different twins around. Why can't it be just on twin machines per se rather than just a particular type? It's, uh, it 
might change. Hopefully it will. It's, um, I think, you know, the, especially in the firefighting area, the, it's, uh, the regs are pretty ODS. That's the way they want it, I suppose. Because it's difficult. There's a that big gulf between a low hour pilot to then get those things. It's always like you know, it's always been the same thing with job ads. It's just getting there. You need the job to get the experience to meet the, the minimums for the job in terms of uh, types but and that's and, right. and it's hard for an operator to put a bloke on and then, you know, spend that time getting him up to scratch, blah, blah, blah. So it's just it's certainly something that should be eased off, I think, a bit, because there's a lot of capable people out there that can't do it because, they, well, they can do it, but they can't get in there because they just haven't got that a number of hours that go on the trots. Yep. But the other, you know, you just, you want know, to think of some of the guys that I've known from scratch who started with very little experience, and, you know, it's not easy, it's a lot because Christ, when we started, yeah, there was I think there were seven, six operators in Australia. That's all six. And you imagine how many are today? There's probably about six hundred. I don't know, but um, and the areas where there's a bigger choice today, of course, where you can go, because there wasn't much tourist stuff when we started. But uh, although exploration seems to be going a little bit west at the moment as well, but no, you just got to stay there, you know, stick at it. That's it. Present yourself. Have the qualifications. Brilliant. Well, Rick, thank you so much for sharing your time and, again, for the things you've, you've done and, and, uh, and taking us through it there this evening. So thank you very much. Thank you and uh, good luck to everybody. Thanks to Glenn Coddington for the intro and recommendation to talk to Rick. Again, it was a chance to capture a bit of history of where the helicopter industry has come from and the types of work and experiences that are out there for others to track down. If it was the 1800s and you were someone who wanted to have some experience of a venture, you might have jumped on a ship to head overseas and see where that work took you to the far off places and ports. Well, helicopter aircrew are these same adventurous souls in the, the modern world. You can definitely end up seeing some places in the world that many others don't get to. I've had two listeners separately point me towards a, a new book with strong recommendations. I'll read the, the blurb from the web. Often referred to as a, a search and rescue daredevil, John Funnell is one of New Zealand's longest serving and most respected search and rescue pilots having clocked an incredible 19,000 hours of flying time. Rescue Pilot shares stories from his 49 years flying search and rescue helicopters all over New Zealand and beyond. John is a hero to the thousands of victims he has transported to safety over the years and is perhaps best known for his unprecedented 1,200-kilometre mission to save a Met Service employee attacked by a shark on a remote sub-Antarctic. Campbell Island. Now I've spoken to John very, very briefly on, on the phone. I tracked down his phone number and, and had a, a quick chat. Uh, and essentially what we came up with is once I can read the book, I can get back to him and, uh, and have a chat with him there and record that chat and share it. So I've got the book. I've just certainly got to sit down and just crack through that to, to finish that off. So if you want to check it out in the meantime and have a read before you actually listen to that, 
The book is Rescue Pilot by John Funnell, F-U-N-N-E-L-L. Not to be confused with the, the book Rescue Pilot by Jerry Grayson from episode 29 of the show back in 2015, which is also an awesome book. If you haven't read that one, that's really, really good as well. So look for both books, both called Rescue Pilot. And as it works out, Jerry is actually back with us next episode to talk about having a career plan B or a side gig in his helicopter aircrew where you can leverage your existing skills outside of the cockpit. Keep an eye out on the podcast feed for these. If you haven't subscribed by now, then I'm not sure what you're doing. Definitely all the cool kids subscribe. Probably iTunes or through whichever podcast app you're using is going to be the easiest. I've had people ask if I'm going to put these on Spotify, but to be honest, it's probably a bit of work that I haven't looked into doing. So it's probably the best way to grab it through one of the other channels. We've got Stephen, Ian, Hal as new supporters of the show in the last few weeks. Thank you. I am stoked. That's really very, very appreciated. I guess I'm, I'm trying to get to a point where I can outsource the podcast audio editing again just to speed things up so I can spend more time on actually recording the interviews and other bits and pieces. Just got to balance that cost, so we'll see how that goes. If you would like to support the show, it's obviously completely voluntary. It gets you involved. Have a look at rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. Alternatively, if you can get a microphone in front of someone nearby to you and capture what you think might be good audio interview for the show, then let's see if we can share that and, and get that out there. So, yeah, have a think who's, who's nearby, either work or, or airport, or you've got access to, and uh, whether you can grab some audio. Doug Williams did a, a fantastic job of this when he got Pete Gillies on and some fascinating stuff there back on episodes 39 and 41, if you remember the discussion on Psychic Back. That's all I've got for today. I hope everyone is doing well out there, wishing you a safe time. Congratulations to Alex and Mitchell for your recent commercial flight test passes too. As we head out, big thank you to the following legends supporting us on Patreon. Ian, Hal, Stephen, Nikolai, Alidar, Ben, Jeff, Mike, Bill, Jason, Brent, Michael, Jack, AJ, Hal, Mark, Shannon, Carolyn, Eric, Jake, Chris, Gareth, Pedro, Daniel, John, Heath, Kevin, Tony, Peter, Mick, Jason, Michael, and Rendell. 